Thanks, Pete, and um, happy Pride, I guess. I feel like after the big weekend in New York, it's like happy Pride hangover, and for people like me who follow the news, it's a particularly unpleasant hangover uh, today. So we'll actually find a way to bring that in a little bit to practice. So um, we'll sit first. Uh, just uh, I'll give a basic instruction for folks who might be new or new to this form of practice. Uh, probably sit, let's call it 35 minutes. So uh, and then uh, we'll have a little break uh, and um, and then talk about um, meditation and toxic masculinity and gender and um, in the in various Buddhist traditions. So to start, I find it helpful to close your eyes. <clears throat> and those of us who have done this before, our attention naturally kind of goes right to the breath. But even before we do that, just seeing what's going on right now, what's predominant in your experience. So if it's on a body level, it could be heat or cold or tiredness or alertness, anything. Happiness, grief, just what's predominant right now, if you could notice it on the level of uh, the mind and the body. So on the body, heat, cold, etc. On the mind, all those mind states, thoughts, thinking. And I find the attention, if you meditate for a while, naturally just goes to the breath. So we don't have to provide a lot of extra input or extra effort. The attention just settles on the object, which in this case will be the physical sensations of breath entering and leaving the body. Again, if you've meditated for a while, you probably have your favorite spot to notice that. It could be the abdomen, it could be the rising and falling of the chest. That's the one that I use. Some people find it easier to focus on the breath entering and leaving the nostrils. But just wherever it's easy for the mind to settle. So the level of attention on the breath is kind of like watching a television program where your attention is on one place, but the mind gets distracted pretty quickly. So as the mind gets distracted, you just bring it back. It's kind of a boring television program, but it's the one that's on the rising and falling of the chest or the entering and exiting of the breath from the body. And a few things happen when we do that. There's a calming effect just of allowing the mind to become concentrated, settled, samadhi. And by being aware of our thoughts of what's going on, we develop what neuroscientists call metacognition where we can actually generate insight insights into our stuff or how things are, our experience, what's going on for us at a particular moment. So it does those two things in one, settling the mind and just noticing what's going on, building the, building the muscles of metacognition. And again, as the mind becomes distracted, see if you can check into the feeling tone of bringing yourself back. Sometimes I have a tendency to bring myself back with a little bit of hostility, like, damn it, why can't you stay on the breath? 
that's not necessary. It's not really that helpful. You give yourself a break. So the mind does what it does. It wanders off. And just really with some loving kindness, compassion, just allow the mind to go back to the breath rather than yanking it like a dog on a leash. You can just kind of let it come back, settle on the breath. Anytime you get sleepy, you can open your eyes, keep doing the practice. If you get super sleepy, you could stand up. And I'll be quiet now for the next half hour. So there'll be ample time to experience the mind wandering and noticing what it's like to catch yourself in that moment. And then just settling back on the rising and falling of the chest or wherever else you feel the breath in the body. Around this point in the sit, it can be good to open your practice up a little bit if you've done this before. So what that means is the breath, the physical sensations of the breath might stay your anchor, but you kind of allow the awareness to drift to other objects that might be predominant. So sitting in at New York Insight, there's always sounds coming in from outside. So rather than kind of push away the sounds or try to focus despite the sounds, you can just kind of co-meditate with the sounds. So there's a sound or there's a thought or there's a sensation and the attention can move from the breath to that other perception. And you can either note it verbally or just note it what, what, what's happening, hearing, sound. And then kind of come back. The breath remains your anchor, your base. But at some point during a sit, I like to open up the practice a little bit so that there's not this artificial wall between inside and outside, between me meditating and the rest of the world unfolding. So we can do that for a few minutes and we'll do a little guided thing at the end. I'm just allowing the attention to move. And if it gets too drifty or disorienting, you can always just come, come right back to the breath. For the last few minutes, <clears throat> for the last few minutes of the sit, we'll cultivate a little bit of some helpful mind states. Most meditation, we're just noticing what is, what's going on, and can I be with it? Can I meet this moment as a friend and just radically accept whatever's arising and passing? Uh, but there also are aspects of meditation, different emphases where, where we don't do that, where we actually incline the mind. And the, when I say the mind, I really mean the mind heart. So we incline the heart toward states of being, states of the heart that are helpful to ourselves and others. There are four of these that are referred to many times in the Pali Canon. Those four, loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. We won't go through all four just now, but we'll do a little sampling. First on the compassion side, 
the invitation, and again, should any of this get drifty, you can just go back to following the breath. The invitation is to bring to mind either someone in your life or to bring in something from this pretty horrible week of public news where you, where you can see that there's suffering there. It might be yourself, it might be your own experience. Again, it might be responding to someone you don't know, but just about some of the news uh, this week. Or someone dear to you in your life. You're going to just pick one and just settle in to bringing that person, that entity to mind and kind of holding it in the heart center. And some of you may know there's like the formal practice of like almost a chant practically internally of like, may you be free from suffering. You can use those words if you've done that practice, but otherwise my invitation is to just kind of sink into the feeling of compassion, feeling with, really actually feeling into that suffering. It might be a sense of precarity, of unsafety. It might be a sense of unwelcome. It might be fear. Not going into too much to the story, trying not to go off into thinking, but actually feeling with, even if we're just imagining what the other person's feeling, just kind of knowing that as suffering and having a wish that that suffering not be so present, not be there. Not that we're trying to argue with reality, but just a wish of compassion. And, you know, really let yourself feel that difficult mind state, whatever it is, if, if it's fear or if it's anxiety. And again, it could be compassion for yourself. That's totally understandable, natural, and good. I'll just stay there for a couple of minutes, either with that formal phrase, may you be free from suffering, or just feeling into the sense of compassion. What does compassion feel like in the heart center? And compassion, feeling with, kind of is a nice antidote to meditation as narcissism. Because we bring in, whether it's ourselves or others, we, we bring that into our practice and feel into a space of compassion. Which, while so there's the sadness or the difficulty of the anxiety or the fear, the anger even, and there's also present compassion. Finally, in the last couple of minutes, we'll gently breathe in and out of that compassion. And I think we all benefit ourselves and others by building our own resilience. So we'll incline the mind toward mudita, toward joy. So it's finding in yourself or with someone you know in your life, doesn't have to be your dearest, partneriest person, just something that, that's joyful in that experience. Sometimes for this piece, I actually just use the piece of meditation itself. If it's been a relatively easeful sit, there's something joyful in that. So it's not joy like fireworks necessarily. It can be a very warm, 
joy of companionship or something nice happening in life or it could also be doesn't have to be a human being it could be a pet and just selecting one and the phrase here if you want to use words is, is just may you be happy I sometimes like to breathe into the experience of l that loving joy in the heart which sometimes has a feeling of a glow or a light a lightness And mudita has an aspect of sympathetic joy, sympathy, feeling with. So whether it's our own joy or that of someone else, we're showing up and feeling it with that person or that animal, that being. So we'll just spend a minute or so checking out the sensation of joy in the heart center. What does that feel like? knowing that we're cultivating that feeling. We're cultivating that feeling of warmth uh, because it helps us in ourselves and enables us to be resilient to do the work that we're doing in the world, to be in the relationships that we're in the, in the world. And if the mind wanders, just come back to that sensation in the heart center. It's okay to smile even. You can fake it too if nobody's watching. And it's that smile that brings together the joy and the compassion. So it's not forgetting the shadow side, not forgetting the suffering, but holding both. I was just looking at the ratio of like extroverts to introverts, and that's when I rang the bell. <laughs> I would be like, when is this part over? <laughs> when can I just sit? Um, so thanks, and um, what fun. I, last time I was teaching here at New York Insight, um, I was doing, I was co-leading with uh, Sebenay Selassie, who some of you might know. We were doing a, a workshop called, Why Are You So Sensitive? bringing justice into our meditation practice and mindfulness to our justice practice. And um, I feel like in a certain way tonight is like a, a, a continuation of that for me. And, um, you know, when we were talking about stuff uh, for pride, I, I was thinking about, well, there's so many different options, right? I mean, there's finding resources within the Dharma for queer folks and allies. Um, there's the sort of narrative which we often hear about coming to see the dukkha of our own internalized uh, whether it's homophobia heterosexism gender binary hang-ups or whatever the things are that that we see inside and outside and I sort of then I you know because of my strange career where I do very sort of political punditry stuff sometimes and then teach meditation other times it really felt like the issues around toxic masculinity just felt like they just kept coming up for me in our own cultural moment, in my own sitting practice, looking at some of my stuff. And um, that's, you know, that th it brought up so many of the other issues around constructions of gender and how those intersect with, uh, with the Dharma, how, those, how the oppressions of gender constructions intersect with other oppressions. And 
I got really inspired and that's what I wanted to share. So, but first I always start every Dharma talk with a joke and I couldn't find a non-offensive joke on this subject. Everything, everything sucked. So I picked a Buddhist joke randomly, not on this subject. So, okay, what did the Buddhist master give to a small child for her birthday? Nothing. <laughs> How did the child respond to the Buddhist master? You are so thoughtless for giving me this meaningless gift. To which the Buddhist master replied, thank you. <laughs> that has nothing to do with the topic, <laughs> but it also wasn't offensive. So, I, uh, well, at least I'm sure it was to someone. Um, so it's also, you know, I, I was saying just before we started where I write at the Daily Beast and I actually focus on the Supreme Court primarily. So it's been a very busy and difficult week, um, I think, for, for folks who are concerned about justice and both in present moment decisions and looking now toward what's about to happen uh, to the court and transform it. And so for me, I, I think my orientation toward Dharma practice is always you know, an engaged one, uh, sort of engaged Buddhism. And so much of what I'm seeing, it's almost like, you know, when I had these two careers, they were very separate for a while. So there was the political stuff and going on TV and whatever, and then there was the spiritual stuff. But in the last couple of years, it's really felt like one thing. You know, it's just, I mean, if you go through like the Buddhist, you know, the bad guys, greed, hatred, and delusion, that's like the members of the cabinet right now, like in the like, and you can actually go through, you know, so much of what's said, not party wise, it's not about partisanship, but like so much of what's said is one of the, like one of those three things, like greed, hatred, and delusion, and, and, and back and forth, and misunderstanding, and misconstruing, and, and I, I really, it's not even that I see these connections between the personal and political, they start to feel like, like kind of one thing in a way. And obviously, you know, we're in this, we're in sort of the Me Too moment where voices that had been disbelieved for decades, maybe centuries, are now being heard somewhat um, and already the reaction against that. And we're seeing, I think, ways in which the kind of, particularly, I think, because of our president, we're seeing the ways in which our own personal stuff can manifest itself in political chaos and in causing great suffering on a massive scale to huge numbers of people. And so it's not, it's not even that there's some necessarily intersection of Dharma practice and justice work. It almost feels like maybe two sides of the same coin. You know, for me, I mean, coming out when I, I came out as a, as a gay man, a cisgender gay man, 15 years ago, a little more than that, 17 years ago, 18 years ago. And for me, meditation was really central in that process. The Dharma was really central in that process. On one long retreat, I did a six-week retreat. This was 14 years ago. Um, and spent just like more than a week just looking at gay shame and internalized homophobia and how I still believed. So, and I was actually working as an LGBT activist at that time. This was this is like a fun pickup line for for going to a gay bar at that time if you googled the phrase gay jewish i was the first hit literally <laughs> the first hit no quotation marks anyway it doesn't work anymore because i haven't done that work in a while but it was true then so i was mr mr gay and yet on retreat you know where the layers 
kind of get peeled back a little bit, there was all of that stuff. And it was triggered by something that one of the teachers said about how you can change anything about yourself. And that's a stupid thing to say. But then I reacted in this very angry way and I saw how tight I was around a certain narrative about what can be changed and what can't be changed and who am I and all of that sort of identity stuff. And so that, it, the Dharma was just crucial to me at that earlier point in my life. And I sort of thought I had a naive false idea that I'd kind of get through some adjustment period and then I'd be all then I'd be all set. Whereas in fact, of course, it's this kind of unfolding process. So the Dharma was this enormous help to me at that time. And yet, and that's true I think for, for a lot of us when we come to the Dharma from different, pers from different perspectives. And yet, if the more we get to know Buddhism as a thing, the more multivalent and complicated it gets. And I mean, Buddhist communities can be really patriarchal, not just traditional conservative Buddhist communities, but even Western, you know, foofy liberal Buddhist communities. Like, there's a lot of spiritual bypass that happens. Like, we think we've worked on our stuff, and then we haven't worked on our stuff at all. Um, most, um, most American Buddhist communities are like white-dominated spaces, and a lot of them are male-dominated spaces. And some of them are spaces which aren't yet even addressing the fact that, wow, we're really... X, what we're dominated by one, you know, by the same people that are dominating so much of other stuff. And so both in the tradition and in its, and its contemporary manifestations, it's not a simple story of, oh, the Dharma saved my life and it's totally awesome and here are all of these great resources for liberation. Like actually a more sophisticated, nuanced relationship maybe was, is necessary uh, to have a respectful and intelligent and maybe even slightly ironic relationship to a tradition. And sometimes that manifests, the, the shadow stuff manifests in extreme examples of abuse. There was just a, an apology issued yesterday by the leader of, Shum, the head of Shambhala, the head lineage holder of Shambhala for himself uh, being in abusive sexual relationships with some of the female members of, of the group. Um, and he wrote this sort of, it was a pretty good apology. I feel like we should have the top 10 list of male apologies for being toxic, masculine, or we like to say assholes before the Buddhist statue. Like, you know, I think Kevin Spacey's for me is the absolute worst. Um, but maybe, but then we could rank them. I don't know if anyone is actually good necessarily. This one was somewhere in between. It was kind of like acknowledging this deep hurt and I'm so sorry. And then kind of, but always, you know, they can never just stop it right then. And so, of course, then it continued like, well, but of course I didn't really realize. And, you know, it's like just, so anyway, it was a halfway decent apology. So that's a, you know, and that's a, a, unfortunately, a tra to put it mildly, tragically, that's a, a somewhat common occurrence of male leaders invested with guru-like powers uh, using that power. But it's not just in those cases where patriarchy and for, and for me, toxic masculinity appear in, as subjects of reflection and, and Dharma reflection. So I wanna attempt what Rita Gross in her book, Buddhism After Patriarchy called a revalorization. So it's like a feminist analysis of the, of the tradition, but not only with a deconstructive effort, but actually to see what can be repaired or what are, the, what are the tools which can be brought. Oh, and by the way, we'll have Q&A, lots of Q&A stuff uh, at the end too, so for conversation. Um, so because 
Buddhist-like lists, I wanted to talk really briefly about four really liberating aspects of Dharma practice around this issue, this subset of gender issues, four challenges, and then four responses. And I'll do that all within the next uh, 28 minutes because I talk fast. Um, so first, you know, just the bare practice of mindfulness has a real potential to undo or at least cast a light on some of the bad stuff. Um, you know, whether it's being open and being receptive rather than controlling and trying to manipulate, um, whether it's seeing anger as something to work on, not necessarily some great thing to manifest and pour out onto your neighbors, whether it's seeing the suffering that's caused by, by being that toxic person. You know, the sort of toxic masculine jerk is actually the height of achievement in sub, sub, subcultures. Like, that's really heavy, highly valued. Um, but not necessarily so much, I think, in, in the mindfulness community. So just the bare practice of mindfulness, of seeing how I intentionally and unintentionally cause harm uh, to myself and to others and seeing what that feels like and building compassion around that. And there's almost an implicit critique of what I see as Western toxic masculinity just in the non-endorsement of anger and violence. Um, I sometimes feel like there's even meditation can be one of the few ways to actually get inside of those socially constructed gears, which many of us, speaking as a, as a man, as a white cisgender man, have in our brains installed and sort of patterns of domination that I don't remember learning, but that I did learn that I did pick up from growing up with my background and kind of seeing that that's there and that that causes suffering to myself and to others, but here primarily to others. That that, so just the process of seeing our stuff and seeing it as dharma, not self. So it's not that I am this person. These factors are present and they came from someplace and they cause these, these effects. Just that, I think, can be a powerful, I mean, just imagine if the, if the members of the cabinet uh, did that. There's also, secondly, I think in, the, in, the, in Buddhist traditions writ large, relatively less bad stuff than in other religious spiritual traditions. The texts aren't quite as queer negative as, as Western religious ones, Jewish, Christian, and Muslim ones. They're not quite as misogynistic. They're pretty misogynistic, but they're not as misogynistic. I'll talk about that more in a minute. And the ones, I think this is more important, the ones which are kind of really sexist are not central, I think, or integral to, the, to approaching the Dharma. So they can be held and seen and not negated. We don't pretend it's not there, but it's not like it's the central point that God is a man and has a penis. Like that's a kind of central issue <laughs> in a lot of Western religious, like that's a, that's a thing that's hard to get around. Um, and there's, there's ways in which the aspects of the tradition that we're working with where they do bring up culturally constructed negative stuff can be held, but not, not, it doesn't have to be centered uh, necessarily. There's also this kind of individualistic pragmatism uh, where our various attributes, we sort of scale in and scale out of them. And what I mean by that is we don't necessarily want to wash away all of our particularity when we're practicing, when we're sitting. Actually, I think one of the reasons why queer and ally groups come together is a recognition that that's actually a kind of self-erasure. 
So I've had teachers say to me, what's great about meditation is you're not gay or straight, you're not male or female, you're not black or white, you're just sitting. And I was like, F you. Like, I don't want to just erase who I am when I, like, I bring all of that karma to the, in fact, to me, that's the best way to understand karma, is that, that, that we are all of ourselves when we sit. And yet there again, what I mean by scale in and out is so sometimes that's central and sometimes it's less central. And sometimes we bring that in in a way that informs our practice and builds our and helps with our meditation practice. And sometimes it is helpful to kind of say, oh, and that's that identity that I can, that, that's more fungible, that's more complicated, that's not, that doesn't fit the easy boxes that, that I and others might put onto it. And so we scale in and out of those different identity markers as it can be kind of skillful. And that really fits, I think, with a certain contemporary kind of worldview. So there's an absence of the bad stuff or a relative absence of the bad stuff and an opportunity to scale how I'm showing up when I sit. Sometimes I really do want to sit in my particularity with my karma and sometimes I don't. Sometimes that's not what I'm working on. Sometimes what's coming up is disconnected from gender, race, class, and sex. And sometimes it's absolutely connected. And I love that there's that possibility of, of scaling in and out of our particularities when we practice. So third, this is the good part, right? Four ways in which meditation mindfulness is, has helped, can help around some of these issues. The Buddha said a lot of nice egalitarian things about gender and caste. And so if you wanted to, you could create an entire fake Buddhism based on just the good things uh, that were said. And some people have done that. And that's how they practice. And that's great. Um, so, you know, for example, uh, the Buddha did teach all kinds of people from different caste backgrounds, which was revolutionary at the time, as recorded in the Pali Canon. The Buddha taught women, which was revolutionary. So if we're doing what's, you know, a search for a usable past, there's a lot of good material that's there. Um, there's also, right, I mean, it's helpful that there are female deity figures so that our spaces can be more egalitarian, still a little gender binary, but at least Kuan Yin is both female and male since she's a manifestation of, of Avalokiteshvara. So yeah. um, the, there are a number of sort of feminine attributes, f female gendered attributes that are valorized. The, the, the personification of wisdom of Prajnaparamita is seen as gendered. Uh, wisdom is seen as feminine, tar the Tara deity, etc. So there are actually a lot of kind of helpful non-masculine models for realization and for awakening uh, that exist within the tradition. And that's actually a, can be profoundly revolutionary uh, for, pe for Westerners who grew up in a, different kind, in a different context where those images and role models were absent. Um, and so that's actually, there's, there's a, a great deal that's there that's, that's actually quite positive. But I think fourth and most importantly, the, the best, the, the, for me, the most nourishing way in which meditation has worked with issues of what a masculine essentialism and, and toxic masculinity has been us, like, like us, like what we are bringing into uh, our Dharma communities, our Western Buddhist communities, and we're bringing in certain values. And it's not a fundamentalist enterprise where the goal is to align everything that we might think with somebody that some, something that somebody said in a text 2,500 years ago. 
we're not finding, we're co-creating. Um, and whether, it, however that manifests in, in, a very, in lots of different ways, you know, in a, in a way it's a lot like liberal Western religion is this way, like what the contributions that queers and others are making to the Dharma, like that's the work that we're doing. There's a model of inclusion that's sort of an assimilationist model, right? Which is, so here's this awesome community that has no problems with, with sexism or homophobia or, or heterosexism, and we just wanna be included in it. So we won't change anything, but we'd, we'd like to get in the door. And that model has been nourishing for some people, but it's not for me. I mean, I'm interested in how can we have a meeting where we both get transformed by that encounter, uh, where there's a, grow, a growing that happens on, on all sides. So by far, for me, the most liberating aspect um, has been it being in a sangha, which is growing, and a community that's growing and that's learning from our, our various um, different experiences. Uh, and that, to me, is something really valuable, that the global sangha, the sort of global community of practitioners, is really benefiting for, from. So what are some of the challenges that's, uh, that, that we face when we, as queer folks, and not saying all of us are queer identified, but I'll say as myself, as queer folks interacting with, with Buddhism, that has been so liberating on the one hand, but also can be really challenging. So first, I think, is just the, the fact that there is a patriarchal tradition that is multivalent about uh, women and queers in particular. So like the Pali Canon, on the one hand, is revolutionary that there are that there are nuns and that women are said to be capable of enlightenment but then there's that line that says the admission of women into the sangha will hasten the demise of the dharma um so the and pajapati the first nun who appears in the pali canon a word a name may be worth knowing is only admitted on all kinds of conditions and having to be subservient to the men and and nuns have to defer to monks and even the most senior nun is sort of at a lower status than the most junior monk so on the one hand there's some really nice stuff in there about sort of a gender egalitarianism and yet on the other hand it's undermined by the fact that it's not really gender egalitarian um, sort of buddhist scholars uh, have seen this as actually reflecting a kind of incorporation of lots of different views so there were some parts of the sangha when these texts were being compiled that had uh more let's say right-wing views and others more left-wing views it's a bit of an anachronism but still um the monks also seemed worried about public opinion like oh my god you guys are are you guys are admitting women like that, that must be that must be scandalous um so there are these conflicting attitudes that are that are in the text um, when it comes to queer folks, there are actual, there are a number of queers in the Buddhist texts going back 2,500 years, which can be really liberating. Uh, there's an, an, an individual called the Pandaka, which is sometimes mistranslated eunuch, but is, is sort of an interesting umbrella term. It's almost, but not quite what we would call gender queer. The term covers people we would identify as intersex, uh, so physical, anatomically, somewhere in between, or both uh, male and female sex, but also people we would identify as either transgender or maybe trans with a star uh, who manifested gender nonconforming uh, appearances and, and actions in a whole variety of ways. So whether it was dress or sexual behavior or otherwise. So it doesn't map onto any particular term that we have but it's a really interesting fact that the Pandaka is there. Uh, but then again, the, non, the monks aren't really supposed to admit Pandakas into the Sangha. Um, so they're not exactly castigated and banished. And just the visibility 
the fact that there's a gender nonconforming, again, with a, not quite gender, but gender slash sex nonconforming individual in the text for me as a matter of visibility is really empowering, um, even though the texts don't really do very good things uh, with, with them. So, and I think just in general, there, there's a centering of male experience in these texts, which were written down primarily by men. There are texts written by Buddhist nuns over the centuries, um, and, and they're, they're, they're great. I mean, they're not just like marginal texts. They're actually really interesting kind of devotional texts and poetry and so forth, but the vast majority center male experience, and they're, and they're written by men. And so how do we work with that? I'll talk about that in, in five minutes, but like, how do we work with that, with the intersection, with the addressing of that? So that's one of our challenges. The, so a second one is that obviously the Dharma is not immune at all to uh, various sex, sex and power abuses, as I've mentioned before. And at a certain point, we have to kind of start to wonder why we're not doing better as a community. Um, you know, there's a lot of reasons for why these scandals appearing. There's a lot of male power. There's few checks on power. There's not a lot of accountability. There is the guru tradition, not so much in, in the Vipassana world, which the center is part of, but in other traditions where you really are meant to submit to your teacher. And it, there's, there's a cultural conflict where sometimes Asian teachers meet Western audiences and they have different assumptions about what each other are supposed to be and how that's supposed to work. And, and there's also the fact that spiritual practice involves eros. There's some juice in spiritual practice. And sometimes the power relationships make it difficult to see on either side that consent is not actually being given. That even the disciple may feel that usually she or he, but usually she is providing consent and only on reflection realizes, wow, that, that wasn't consent. That was a power relationship. And what, looked, what may have felt like consent at the time really wasn't consent. And certainly that misconception is true from the teacher side. So there's a lot of roots of why that's the case. But certainly we're not doing better. We Buddhist people are not, uh, are not doing better than other industries or sectors or religious communities. And I think that leads to maybe the third, maybe the most important of these four uh, challenges that I meet and encounter, which is the problem of spiritual bypass. Just curious, how many people have heard the term spiritual bypass? Like everybody, it's the queer sangha. We all know about spiritual bypass. So a spiritual bypass is just about, you know, where you may have a lot of stuff that you need to be working on, but you bypass that stuff because you're such an awesome spiritual person and you feel like that, that spiritual practice, your meditation or whatever, is going to take care of all that stuff and surprise, surprise, it doesn't take care of that stuff. And so the, a lot of, certainly on the teacher side, I, I can say that a lot of that stuff is gender related. Right? You can be really spiritually advanced and be a total toxic masculine asshole, taking up all of the space in the room, uh, cutting off women's voices, not listening, dominating conversation, dominating space, taking, right, manifesting all kinds of greed, hatred, and delusion, and sort of saying that's how it's supposed to be. And there's this mistake that, that, we, that some, that I, have sometimes had that's like, well, if I just progress further along this spiritual path, all of this, all of my unexamined material <laughs> regarding uh, race, class, gender, sexual orientation will just take care of itself. So I can just do some spiritual bypass. And that gets actually amplified by an implicit sex negativity that's a lot of time in the tradition itself. Like I can easily reinscribe Western sex negativity into a Buddhist frame. Um, 
And so I could, spiritual practitioners can actually repeat sex negative frames that really can harm people with different sexual practices, sexual identities, gender identities. And I, I, like, I think it's a really, I've loved, I don't know, loved, it's the wrong word. It's funny with like meditators, we say like, yeah, oh, I had a terrible sit and all of this internalized hatred came up. It was awesome. <laughs> but I do, those, are, those are sometimes great sits. And I think actually when I've seen spiritual bypass in myself, it's actually been really interesting to kind of see that. Like there's an assumption, an impl uh, sometimes imp usually implicit assumption that like, oh, well, I, I, I'm above that or beyond that because I've done this work. Um, and then that's just that more grist for the mill. Like that's definitely not true. And how could it be true? How could developing our spirit, our cognitive and emotional uh, capacities in one direction necessarily undo all of the stuff that I was raised with for decades? Um, so that, that spiritual bypass, and it's easy to kind of point it out in someone else, but like when I see it in myself, it's actually real grist for the mill, meaning it's, that's the real material to work on um, for me. But lastly, there is also this sort of problem in meditation of quietism or narcissism. Um, it's not as extreme as a lot of people would say, but there is sometimes that sense of like, well, please don't bring in politics to our peaceful meditation space. <laughs> please, please don't tell us how our white-dominated space is perpetuating white supremacy. Please don't tell me how my male-dominated space is perpetuating patriarchy. Those are political concerns, and they don't have to do with what we do here, which isn't political, even though what we do here is directly doing those things, right? And so there is that tendency that sometimes arises that we really want to look at and not replicate. No, of course we want our own sanghas to integrate our not just political commitments in terms of part, but political in the rich sense, in the deep sense, our justice commitments. Um, and, but there is that sense. Um, I, teach, uh, I teach meditation in a lot of different contexts, and in some of them, there is actual a real reluctance, like, no, no, I'm coming to meditate to get away from all of that stuff. And that's totally understandable, right? But in getting away from that stuff, well, there's a lot of privilege just in that, right? Like you have the capacity to get away from that stuff. But, you know, we want to find that space where we bring the stuff in not to replace the sort of healing value of refuge, of taking refuge, um, but not to sort of become kind of ostriches about it either. So, you know, is it okay to be angry? And what does that mean? And how do we work with that in a in a discipline which wants to sort of see what anger is maybe uproot anger but also be committed people in our society in this moment where anger seems to be at the very least justified if not mandated demanded by the circumstances in which or in the times in which we're living so that's a dance i don't have an answer to that piece um, I definitely know many of my kind of fellow activists become sort of consumed by anger in a way that's not helpful for their work, for their justice work, let alone their own mental health. And so for me, I've seen the sort of value of having a mindfulness practice or a meditation practice in order to be more effective. So to, to sort of channel the anger where that can be helpful, but then actually hold back the anger where it might not be helpful, um, but to each their own, right? And, but it's, it's never as, it's, it, there's, there is this tendency, I think, in our meditation practices to kind of want to say, well, no, 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 this is my special island. 
Um, and I want to honor that because a lot of us really need the place to recharge. And yet I also want to disturb it a little bit. All right, so in the last like 10 minutes, what are some of the ways in which these difficult challenges have been worked on in ways that I find inspiring? And then we have a lot of time for conversation and I'd love to hear what you have to say. Sometimes we do small groups at that point, but we're actually just gonna do the Q&A thing just in a big group. So um, first, there's been like a lot of really good reform work that's happened in our communities. Um, all of the kind of three major branches of uh, Buddhism in the West, so Vipassana, Theravada, um, Tibetan, and Zen, now have to some degree women's ordination and women's leadership and queer inclusion. Um, and justice values integrated into sanghas, codes of conduct into sanghas, having teachers be more accountable. You know, there's an interesting kind of conversation in multiple ways. Like when the first time that the Dalai Lama was told about gay people, um, he actually he had no idea what was being asked of him. And he actually said, well, that's, that's a violation of the precept, right? The fourth precept about, about sexual misconduct. Um, and that was because he had, he, what, what he heard when he was asked that question was his experience in the Vinaya, in, the, in the, the, the Tibetan version of the Vinaya, the monastic codes, of what to do when monks are engaged, male monks are engaged in same-sex conduct with each other. And there's this kind of minor, it's a no-no, but it's not a big no-no. It's like a no-no, you're not supposed to do that. And that's what he thought was being asked about. Because in his cultural context, that's what was the subject. Then there was this hurried meeting called between some of the leading queer Buddhists, this was in the 70s, and the Dalai Lama to quickly like bring the Dalai Lama up to speed on what the questioner actually meant. Like it was a Western questioner and they had a particular construction of what gay meant or homosexual meant. And that's what was being asked about, not like, not that, but this other thing. And so there was this process and the Dalai Lama issued another statement. You know, that kind of conversation is one that I think can be really fruitful to all sorts of sides, like seeing where our cultural constructions bump up against one another. Um, and that's actually happening. Um, you know, there's, there's also, and, and the, that I think can help in the correction that Westerners sometimes, we can manifest, we speaking as a Westerner, can manifest a kind of Eurocentrism or colonialism uh, in our own approaches to whatever, to Buddhism, whatever that means. And it's definitely something I'm mindful of all the time, whether it's cultural appropriation or colonialist thinking or whatever, Orientalism, just sort of noticing, well, that could also come up, like, here I have, so I assume I have the answers as a good Western liberal, um, and don't worry, I can reform this tradition for, for you guys, even though you've been doing it for 2,500 years in an entire civilization or four civilizations. Don't worry, I can, I can help. I can help with that. I gotcha. White men are great at that. So just sort of noticing the colonialist thinking that can happen uh, in that process. So it's a two-sided right, conversation. Um, I think for me, just seeing the you know, there's a phrase now, the dukkha of racism, the suffering of racism, is also the dukkha of toxic masculinity and waking up to seeing that as dukkha, as suffering. So it's not, that's, that's not like, oh, I have my Dharma commitments and then there's this other social justice stuff, but actually seeing, like exploring it from a, a Dharmic point of view, what is the suffering that comes from privilege and oppression and racism and sexism and homophobia and toxic masculinity. So making it part of the practice, not a, like an intrusion or an additional piece. Um, 
and you know, we say, and we'll say at the end of tonight, when we sort of dedicate the merit of practice, that we practice for the benefit of all beings. But maybe really, how does that how does that operate? How do my own internalized assumptions, but more importantly, my unconscious biases that operate around, in this case, gender um, and gender constructions, even that aren't you know that are social constructions. How do those perpetuate dukkha? Like that's actually where, so that's the same as, you know, it's maybe a different kind of greed, hatred, and delusion than, one's, than one which one might read about in some text, but actually seeing it as not at all separate from that. Um, and that's actually, interestingly enough, maybe a side note, informing some of the interesting work on unconscious bias that's happening uh, now. So um, there's a group called Be More America, headed by Anara Gupta, who some of you might know, a friend of mine. Um, who's sort of utilizing mindfulness kind of techniques to work on implicit bias. Um, by the way, I don't know if anyone's noticed, but the right has learned about implicit bias, and now they hate it. I don't know if you noticed. It's very recent. It's very recent. It's like in the last year or so, there's been this now new right-wing right, right -wing discourse castigating the left for pointing out that implicit bias is a thing and saying, of course, implicit bias isn't a thing, which I think is actually really, this is a total side note, but like, I think it's totally fascinating because, right, it gets, a, it, it attacks their primary claim, which is like, since I have no conscious racism or sexism, therefore I am not, I am not complicit and I am not implicated in the system or anything else. It's like, well, guess what? Actually, you have unconscious stuff that you're not even aware of. Like that undermines the whole, that whole exculpation, I think, of responsibility. Anyway, so, um, implicit bias work. Also, uh, Shaquille Chowdhury's book, Deep Diversity, which applies a lot of sort of mindfulness techniques uh, into, uh, into deep diversity work. So that, I think, has actually really been, for me, a, an evolving part of my own practice, um, seeing the dukkha that comes from these assumptions of these ways of being um, around, or in this case, around gender. Um, Third is something around that I, I like to think of as beyond inclusion. So, you know, what happens when we look at Buddhism through a queer lens? Now there's actually like a lot of really good books about that and production of culture. You know, when we're centering, you know, we're centering different voices, that actually is transforming the, the different ways in which we interact with the Dharma. So I like wrote out like a whole bunch of books, but maybe I'll just post it at the end. But um, you know, whether it's Angel Kyoto Williams or Rita Gross, who I mentioned, or uh, The Way of Tenderness by Zenju Earthland Manual, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, there's actually like, and that's just started. So if you're a words person like I am, um, and you feel like you maybe have something to say on this intersection, please say it, because like, it's just started. Like, and there's, you know, the first couple, I mean, it's like it always is. Like, there was a little burst, and it was good, and there was some good stuff, the queer Dharma anthologies from, like, 30 years ago, but they're of their time and place, and they're just a certain set of voices. And, like, there's this real opening now that I find really exciting, um, where we're kind of, gener where the, the generational shift, and, like, there's this real interesting production of Dharmic writing that reflects the different perspectives that, you know, 2018 has compared with different periods and different times. Um, you know, one interesting question, just as an example around, uh, so th there's no right answer to the following question, which it has to do with, with gender and essentialism. So like a lot of people 
kind of like a certain kind of gender essentialism because there's gender specificity. So earlier I mentioned like the personification of wisdom as feminine. So some people think that's awesome. Some people hate that. Interestingly, at least it's wisdom. Like it's not the usual Western associations with femininity, like da 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 da. It's at least a little bit different. Of course, we also have in the West the feminization of, of wisdom, Sophia. But anyway, so for some people that's actually really liberating. And for some people it's really binaristic and essentialistic and super not liberating. And so there's not going to be, I, I don't think there's going to be one resolution of that kind of a question. So, for example, like, you know, when St. Paul said there's no male and female in Christ. So that's similar to the Buddha taking on both male and female um, uh, students. So there's something really profoundly liberating that's there. And yet there's also maybe an erasure that takes place, like I was, like I was kind of saying before. So do you prefer the enlightenment transcends gender identity element? Or do you worry that maybe actually that erases the importance of gender uh, diversity, let's say, and gender expressions? Like, it's not so simple. It's not, that's just one example that I think there's subject for a lot of fruitful conversations uh, around some, why, some people find that kind of essentialism or associationism uh, really liberating, and some find it the exact opposite of liberating. So my last point has to do with this phrase, the search for the usable past. Um, I hope everyone's read Adrian Rich's poem, Diving into the Wreck, but that's like my kind of map to my entire conceptual universe in all ways. Um, and right, so the, in, that, in that poem, which I thought about reading, but I'm not gonna read, uh, there, the metaphor is kind of, she's going to like scuba diving in a wreck, in a shipwreck under, you know, under the water. And um, not to, so to see what's there, like that there might be treasure in the shipwreck it's like the shipwreck, right? This is, this is the vast patriarchal edifice of all of the oppressions of Western civilization, right? And yet there might be something to obtain. There might be a usable past. There might be treasures lying within the wreck. That, I think, is a really more sophisticated and less culturally appropriative approach to Dharma practice than the notion of, oh, what does Buddhism say about, in a way, or what can I find, you know, what do I assume that's in the tradition that must be awesome you know, that actually, in a way, has a certain fetishism in it. You know, there's like, can we replace that fetishization of tradition with a much more sophisticated understanding of a multivalent tradition? Like, here's the parts that are usable, and here's the parts that I'm not denying are there, and that aren't usable, and that I'm not going to perpetuate. Even though somebody told me 2,000 years ago I have to submit to a teacher in all ways in order to progress in my spiritual practice, here's why I'm not taking that up. Um, because I, I'm in my time and place. Um, and, I, or, and, you know, maybe it evens like a, a healthy bit of irony or, or even humor uh, around how we interact with the tradition. So I think, at least in my experience, there have been, I've, I've found my own work on my stuff um, to be greatly aided by not just meditation specifically, but the Eightfold Path as a whole, um, right speech, just alone if could be a, a wonderful weapon against the manifestation of toxic masculinity. And it's actually, I took it on, I guess it was like two years ago or so, as like a real focus for me just on right speech in particular. You know, sometimes no speech is right speech. And I actually grew up, there's a joke, there's a Jewish joke about this, like we Jews uh, have a way of saying when we want to speak, we interrupt, which is kind of funny and true. But as the male Jew doing that, it's maybe not so funny. It's still true. But it's not like, 
and actually seeing that, like I do do that. I do have that tendency to talk over people just in regular conversation, let alone in a teacher's, but I, I, yeah, that's true. And that's problematic. Like, you know, sometimes it's like, sometimes there's a safe space to do that. Like I still have like a few straight friends and like once in a while we go for pizza and stuff and like we interrupt each other all the time and it, it's kind of fun. It's like my version of like broing out. But <laughs> sometimes it's really not like that's not a good way to conduct oneself in the world. And so like that's been about right speech, not like beating myself over the head with like a bunch of shoulds and I should do this, should do that. But like, oh yeah, right speech is part of the, you know, that's, that's like part of the Eightfold Path. You know, how does that how does that translate into my, you know, my life? If I had to modify right speech, maybe it would be right speech, right listening. Like that would be kind of a nice like maybe we should have the ninefold path. No, no, no. So I think the this shadowish material to conclude, like recognizing where there's sex negativity or misogyny or quietism within American Buddhism, it's not about th throwing out the Buddha with the bathwater. Um but actually affirming the value of a postmodern reformist enterprise that reclaims, but doesn't replicate in a sort of fake nostalgia, the values in, the, in these root traditions. And that for me is actually a really exciting place to be. Um, and I'm so glad to be able to be in it with you guys. So thank you. So um, yeah. I'm totally excited for the next 15 minutes of conversation. There's first. Hey, I think it's on. It is, yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's true. Sure. No, yeah, totally right. Um, I'll build up my background to what I was going to do with that. There's in, um, so, you know, a multi-tradition. So in the Jewish tradition, Jewish religious tradition, there's very, very little that's been written by women. Um, very, very little, like before the, before the 20th century, of course. And um, what's there is often profoundly unsatisfying because it's kind of like, here's how to submit to your husband better. And like, here's how to be a good wife and all that kind of stuff. And so what I meant when I said it's even good is that it's not that, um, that it's actually the nun's poetry that we have is this really profound poetry. So not that like, wow, nuns are able to write good poetry, but more, wow, here's a religious tradition which actually preserved women's voices in a way that's not just about how to submit better to men. But I didn't say that, so you're totally on point. So thank you for that, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's totally depressing. There's, the, there's journals of Glickel of Hamelin, which is like the only Jewish text written by a woman that we have in our possession for like 500 years. Like one text, and it's one person's diary. And she just says these things, which are just kind of like, oh. Like she just, 
you know, she's of her time and place. That's it. You know, she's but she's not like fighting against the system of which she's a part. And so it's just like, on the one hand, this like, wow, here's this text. And it's like one text in 500 years. Like it's this out outrage. And um, so that's, yeah, that, but I, like I said, I didn't say that. So, yeah. Who we don't. Totally. Yeah. Completely. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Yeah. The um, there's a new book that just came out. Uh, I think I think it's just called Sexuality in South Asian Buddhism, but it deals with sexuality, sex, and gender. And um, this category of the pandaka, which I mentioned before. Uh, so it goes to there's a lot of detail because this was a society that didn't. Um, let's see. I don't want to misspeak. That didn't like anatomically modify babies who you know who didn't have uh, either traditional male or female anatomy. And so there was a wide variety of physical body types. And so in discussing the various forms of the Pandaka, these are included in them. And like I mentioned, it's, you know, it's a different culture. So there's, there's what we would see as mixing of sex and gender in that, in that category of the Pandaka. But it can actually be really liberating to kind of see, oh, here's a culture that actually, not to like say, oh, they were so awesome on everything, but here's a culture which actually recognized a lot of body diversity. And there are all of these, I mean, there's a lot of different categories, right? There are a lot of different kinds of bodies. And you know, they're, the, the, the Buddhist texts are kind of concerned with, okay, well, do we put these people with the men or with the women? You know, are they monks or are they nuns? And where do they fit in our binary system? Which is a whole other subject. But um, just from a visibility point of view, the, the, the author is named Jose Cabazon, and it's his new book. Uh, it's this big 600-page book. And, um, but thank you for uh, raising the visibility of that. Thank you. Is there a 
Yeah, so I don't know if everyone heard that, but what is toxic masculinity? Yeah, I didn't really define it, which I, I guess I could have done. Um, does someone else have like a handy, like, I know it when I see it, like he's in the White House. Um, yeah, I mean, my working definition, which is not a formal definition, um, is uh, a, set of, a, a, a set of traits that get associated with masculinity valued uh, and then kind of manifested on, uh, imposed on others, particularly in groups, but imposed on others in ways that cause all kinds of suffering and harm. So to see, let's say, locker room talk as okay, like, oh, it's okay to just say horrible things about objectifying women and sexually assaulting women. To me, that's sort of, that's a, that fits within that rubric. So there's this definition of boys will be boys, this idea about what tox what masculinity is. Um, and it's toxic to everybody else. Arguably, it's also toxic to the person who has it. But um, so any of those kinds of behaviors uh, which have been seen as acceptable and even given pride of place and dominance uh, in a lot of, well, in, in thousands of years of patriarchal society. Um, but also things around violence. There's a lot of, I'm still struggling actually because there's some metaphors Buddhism often uses warrior metaphors and warrior language, which I don't know, I'd be curious for other people's like thoughts on that. I mean, on the one hand, like militarism is part of, like the way militarism gets displayed is part of toxic masculinity for me, right? It's like, well, we have the bigger, our, our weapons are so big that they're even bigger than your weapons, you know? So whether it's like that or, or just that constant militarism. On the other hand, they're also female warriors and various, so I don't want to say it's like just a men thing. It's been interesting. One of the metaphors for, um, in, the, in the Vipassana world, there's, so I even mentioned in, when we sat, there's like concentration and insight. And so concentration is just kind of focusing the mind in a way and getting it really, really focused. And then insight is what you do with it. Like you, you're able to then see different things. And one of the metaphors that I use when I talk about concentration and insight is that concentration sharpens the sword to cut the head off of delusion. It's, I think, a Tibetan metaphor. And um, some people hate that metaphor, right? So it's super violent, right? And it's militaristic. So it's like, wait, you're, so there's a lot of stuff packed into that. On the other hand, some people really like that metaphor because it's kind of like, yeah, I mean, we're not cutting off the head of a person. We're cutting off the head of our own delusion. Like we're working on our stuff. So I've stopped using that metaphor for now um, when I teach concentration practice because a lot of people really find it alienating. But that might be an example of something right on the border. Like is using a militaristic violent metaphor that involves decapitating another person um, part of this kind of um, this kind of net of toxic masculine discourse um, or not and it's still for me kind of a work in progress i still haven't found another a better metaphor for concentration and insight but one person said you should it's like sh what was it sharpening a knife to cut your eggplant better or something like that like you can really cut through those vegetables if you <laughs> you sharpen the knife first just doesn't have the same uh, same punch. So, but you're right. I never really define the term. Um, and again, if somebody has like a better kind of dictionary definition, that would be awesome. So thank you. Are you going to offer that? Yeah, but, what? 
Oh, 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 yeah, healthy masculinity. Yeah, I mean, I, for me, healthy masculinity is partly defined by masculinity that doesn't inflict dukkha on everybody else. That, you know, to the extent that we want to adopt categories of masculine and feminine, recognizing that those are culturally constructed, that they're constantly shifting, that the associations might be different, that some people, one person might engage in some, let's say, gender presentation which someone sees as masculine, but they may not experience as masculine, they may experience it as feminine. So seeing that these are all shifting kinds of categories. And, and I think, yeah, to me, it's the, it's the first, it's the do not, you know, the do no harm principle. Like if I'm secure, or even if I'm not secure in my masculinity, but if I'm, if I'm in a relationship with my masculinity where I'm not, manif where I'm not like imposing suffering on others frequently, that's like a, to me, a sign of what, what we mean by health. And sort of integrating the shadow and integrating the, again, if we choose to use this binaristic language, integrating the feminine side within the masculine side. Or if we choose not to use that binaristic language, then sort of questioning that binary and that sort of artificial dichotomy and seeing how actually there's just a lot of attributes out there and we don't have to, they don't always have to get sorted into these two categories. Um, yeah, long winded answer, sorry. Yeah. What's the it? Uh, just the recentness of it. Um, I'm happy to use Zen. There's lots of Zen scandals that have happened uh, recently, and and there's some in the, there are fewer for a variety of reasons in the Theravadan world, but there's scandals here too. So um, I certainly didn't mean to single him out as if he's the only uh, misbehaving teacher. It was just so shocking that it happened. I mean, it, the apology was published two days ago, I think, or three days ago. So. Um, yeah, no, there is always, I, I've, I've seen it less, I don't know, yeah, there's always the like, what, what my sect has that your sect doesn't have, and comparing and, you know, contrasting, whereas for me, I mean, my, my own, most of my practice is in a Theravadan frame, but uh, Dzogchen in particular has been, you know, some of my Dzogchen teachers, Tibetan teachers have been the most transformative and for me, integrating those two, I've done a little Zen, but more as a like dilettante than a serious practitioner. But, you know, going on a, on three week long Dzogchen retreats has been just really powerful and and seeing the effect of a variety of there's so many there's such a rich variety of Tibetan practices in particular that there are so many ways in for so seeing some people who are really awesome visualizers and some people are doing Tonglen and some people are doing like there's so many different options that I think are fruitful. So for me personally, but I'm a, for me personally, I, I find that sort of sectarian thing almost just kind of weird because it, it, it just, but it definitely is a, is a manifestation of uh, spiritual materialism. And uh, 
you know, I'm, I'm cooler because I'm this sect and I'm that sect. And um, in the Theravadan world, um, Ajahn, Ajahn Suchito, who's a uh, Thai uh, meditation master, has some really good talks on that uh, where he's kind of like, you know, what, maybe we should just stop. Who cares? All right, I'm not a Buddhist anymore. Uh, that, maybe that would be better. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you know, he's a monk with like a whole, a whole, he's the abbot of a monastery. Uh, so I apologize if I, uh, if I gave the impression that Shambhala is any worse off than, uh, uh, than the other sects. Oh, there's just the telling of the story. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's only recent. There's a really, there's a short book called The Zen Predator of the Upper East Side. Uh, and uh, that's what it's about. And, uh, and there, yeah, there's, so, yeah. Maybe time for one more, and then uh, Pete's going to close up with uh, announcements and Donna talk. Yeah. Well, sorry, and the, yeah, no, you just said, and the variations, and then I missed the next phrase. Dynamics. Yeah, yeah. love that question yeah no I mean I yeah I, I hmm. you know I think for me that what's coming up is something around um, is something around safety and I don't want to I'm not really a fan of the word calling out but calling out um, you know if there's a safety I think one thing that I experience is a degree of safety in calling stuff out that others might not experience. Um, and then there's, you know, the skillfulness of, of how that's done. Um, I think where, my, where it's intersected with my Dharma practice has been on a pretty mundane level, but where it's just literally like, what I want to say versus what's skillful to say. Like I learned the word skillful in the Buddhist world. I don't really know why Buddhists say that word all the time, but we do, right? Like, is that skillful? But I find it is kind of a helpful word for me. Um, 
because it gets away from, it gets to a really like, okay, what can help shift this situation? Um, and what's the most skillful speech or action at a particular time, which calling out usually is not for in my experience, but like, so what's, so what is calling in look like, like in a way that's actually recognized, like, okay, if there's a safety in that relationship, like if I have the position of safe of some safety to be able to even have that conversation. So I think that means there's a, a little bit of a responsibility to have that conversation because I can. Um, and then like the skillfulness of what that looks like tends to be distinguishing in my own mind or heart. Yeah, there's that part that just wants to do this thing and then what would actually be skillful. But I, I also like maybe one reason I'm hesitating in, in even responding is I think it's so fraught. Like the one thing I'd never, I definitely don't want to do is tell other people how to express rage or skillful communication or calling out like you know there's been all this stuff like you know, this ridiculous little tempest in a teapot about like should this restaurant have turned away sarah sanders like there's a lot of like conversation about that and not about kids in cages right but like okay all right all right so all right, here, here's that conversation like i don't know i mean i you know that restaurant was in a particular place like they're in a particular they have a particular opportunity maybe they don't maybe the restaurant owner this is like their one opportunity to actually do some direct action. Like, I don't know anything about that restaurant owner. I don't know what her, like, and I, you know, was that skillful or not? I, I don't know. I mean, I could have maybe for myself in that moment imagined some other action, but maybe that was skillful to make this person not feel like they can be just get, a, get away with what they're getting away with. Like, so there's just, but the, so there's no like, I just was noticing that as people were shouting at each other about like, you know, do you do it or do you not do it? Or how do you, how do we this, how do we that? And I, I just felt like it, for me, it, it's so context dependent. Like I don't want to be a relativist and just say, oh yeah, do whatever. But like that, but that's where it's been helpful for me has been in this, in the, in the quest, in the ability to hold the negative emotion of wanting to react in a particular way and thus let let a different part drive. A friend of mine used this phrase that I thought was really helpful. That a, a friend, two friends of mine were in a conflict actually, and I was I was mediating it, and one of them said, "You know, I understand that you were feeling you have these feelings, but to hand them the mic, like to hand them the microphone, that's what I can't like. Uh, that's what I couldn't understand." And I thought that phrase was really good, like since you're holding the microphone, like how do we, yeah, like which parts of, which voices do we hand the mic, you know? And again, if there's safety, like there might just be rage and, there, and that's, then that's what happens, right? But if there's that safety so that I can be like skillful, like which voice do I hand the microphone to of my own voices? Um, that's been a Dharma practice for me that has been helpful, so thanks. Thank you. So Pete's going to do announcements, and then we'll do our dedication of merit, or as I call it, the attempt to not be narcissistic about our practice. All right, well, it's 9 o'clock. We'll do a really short dedication of merit. What I love about this part of practice is it's a 180-degree inversion of how some people understand it. Uh, one idea is that doing any kind of meditation generates this thing called merit which is like a positive beneficial force. 
And so there's a practice of dedicating that merit so that we don't keep it for ourselves, but we share it. Uh, for me, actually, I like it the opposite way, uh, that it's a, a mandate to share the merit. So instead of having a cosmic idea that our magic force spreads out to the universe, uh, taking the following intention. So I'll close my eyes and for this part that, that the, taking the intention to manifest that merit ourselves through our actions, that the benefit of this practice should not inure only to us, that we're not little cul-de-sacs or dead ends of the benefits of meditation, but consciously and not as we manifest the better elements of ourselves, the more skillful, loving, compassionate sides of ourselves, that that merit becomes shared with all of those around us and ripples out to all beings everywhere. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.